1 Kings 10 from verse 23. King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. The whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. Year after year, everyone who came brought a gift, articles of silver and gold, robes, weapons and spices, and horses and mules. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones and cedar as plentiful as sycamore fig trees in the foothills. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and from Kuwait. The royal merchants purchased them from Kuwait at the current price. They imported a chariot from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. They also exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and of the Arameans. King Solomon, however, loves many foreign women beside Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely, as David his father had done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemoth, the detestable god of Moab, and for Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives, who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David your father, I will not doing it, do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Well, good morning again, everyone. My name's Cam Maxwell, and I just realised, looking at the screen there, um, I should say I'm not thinking of myself as a brilliant fool. I'm speaking about a brilliant fool this morning. Um, so, yeah, sorry if that's misleading, but we'll find out. Um, my guess, though, is that uh, most of us want to live a life that matters, don't we? Uh, a life that means something that we can look back on in old age and say, well, I didn't waste my life. I didn't fill it up with silly things. Uh, for all my failings, I lived a life that mattered. My guess is if that's not you, uh, you look at life very differently to me, and I'd love to actually hear from you afterwards if you don't, uh, don't sort of look that way at life. But I do think that uh, 
living a life that matters is what we're all uh, on about, it's what we're aiming for. But the problems sort of start from there, like what does that mean? What does it mean to live a life that matters? And how do you know what really matters? Especially because we find that sometimes what we think matters turns out later on to not have mattered as much as we thought. Um, I worked very hard in high school on maths. I was kind of okay at it, but I also thought it'd be good to get into university. At university, I worked even harder on maths as I studied to be an engineer. Um, But I'm pretty sure I've never once in my life since uni had to work out the slope of a graph. Uh, And even as I worked as an engineer, a lot of the maths I used just went out the window. Um, I'm yet to come across a partial problem that requires a high-level algebra. I just don't use maths anymore in the same way I thought I needed to. Maths matters, it's a great thing. Uh, It matters, of course, some of you use it regularly and it's very important in your life. But I guess I'm just saying that it turns out for me it didn't matter anywhere near as much as I thought it did at the time. Now, I'm pretty sure um, I learned somewhere, I can't remember where, I'm sure I learned somewhere that most people can sum up what matters to them in, in three broad categories. I can't remember where I read this. I couldn't find it on Google, so it's possible I'm just making this up this morning. Uh, We'll see how we go. Um, Yeah, here we go. It's on a slide here. I think it's possible you can sum up all the things that matter in your life in three broad categories, the three S's, uh, security, satisfaction, and significance. Now, if any of you know where I've stolen this from, please come and tell me, and if you know it's just made up, come and tell me as well. But I I think it works. I think it kind of works. I'll give you an example of how these categories work. Uh, we think security matters, right? Like feeling that we're in control, that we're safe. And so we take care of our health, uh, our bodies. Uh, we make sure we have secure shelter, uh, a nice house with a big fence. Uh, perhaps the thing will make us feel safest is a large bank account where we've got uh, options when uh, chaos happens. That's uh, safety, or security, sorry. Uh, satisfaction then, uh, a life that matters would include a lot of recreation, uh, leisure and great hobbies, enriching our lives, uh, great experiences. Uh, not just sitting in an office uh, all all our life. Uh, Perhaps uh, finding a sense of purpose and uh, being satisfied by a job well done when you're doing a job that means something. Or take significance, our third S, uh, uh, our image perhaps, our brand, uh, whether it be uh, in a community or online, something we care deeply about often. Um, Having relationships and community involvement, uh, perhaps uh, leaving behind a significant legacy. There'll be overlap in these categories, and like I said, they're possibly entirely made up. I don't know. I think it's a thing. Um, More to the point, though, as you look at that screen, I reckon I've done okay summing up most of the things that we really care about, right? These are the things I think we throw most of our lives into, our energy, our time, our money. And so on that list, uh, what matters to you the most? What matters? Perhaps what would you add? What's not on the list that you think uh, is really, really important to you? Well, let me ask it another way. Uh, If someone knows you really well, what would they say matters in your life as they watch you spend your time and energy on things? The trick for us is knowing which of these things will turn out not to matter as much as we think they do now. Now, this is just to get us thinking, okay? Just to get us thinking, because today we're continuing uh, in our series in 1 Kings, uh, and uh, we didn't get to see this in the Bible reading. It happens at the end of chapter 11. King Solomon, this great king, he dies, And in these chapters, I think we're invited by the narrator to to evaluate his life. Solomon did so many wonderful things, so many things that seem to have mattered, but the question is, what ultimately really mattered and what falls to the wayside? Now, if you're just joining us today and uh, you've missed uh, the story so far in 1 Kings, firstly, welcome, it's great to have you with us. Um, 
for yourself and for our regulars, actually, you might, be, uh, might find it helpful to know that our podcasts are now available. Uh, you can find it on our website, our old sermons. So if you want to catch up on 1 Kings and find out what you've missed, you'll find our old sermons there. Today, though, I'll just give us a very brief summary of the story so far and what we need to know about King Solomon. Uh, first, it's helpful to know that God made a very big promise to Solomon's father, King David. Uh, that he, God promised that one of David's offspring would have built a temple... And then he'd establish a throne and a kingdom that lasts forever. That's quite a royal dynasty, isn't it? An eternal dynasty is promised to King David. And God promises he will never take his love away from that son of David. And if you want to look that up, you can go back to 2 Samuel 7 and read that, as if you're taking notes there. We've seen in our series so far that Solomon has uh, he's been made the king, uh, he's one of David's sons, and uh, we'll have a look, actually, at what David's told Solomon as he hands over uh, the reins to the, th- to the kingdom. Uh, in chapter 2, this is verse 2, and you can flick back there in your Bibles if you have them open. Chapter 2, verse 2, will be on the screen here as well. As David uh, says to Solomon, I'm about to go the way of all the earth, you know, about to die. So, be strong, act like a man, and observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in obedience to Him, keep His decrees and commands, His laws and regulations, as written in the law of Moses. Do this so you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go, that the Lord may keep his promise to me. If your descendants watch how they live, and if they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, you will never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. Big promise, but that last, that last sentence or two there, I find that slightly concerning in the storyline because you wonder if it's God's promise that he's going to keep no matter what, or if God's promise somehow depends on the kings being faithful and wholehearted in their obedience. It's an interesting question. We'll come back to that one. Because in the last couple of weeks, as we've looked at Solomon uh, take on the reins of the kingdom, we haven't had to worry about this because he's been brilliant. Uh, He emerges as a wonderful king. He's very impressive. Uh, God has made Solomon far wiser than anyone who has ever lived. And the kind of wisdom that Solomon has as well, it's a a wisdom that a king needs. It's good for his, his kingdom. He's a king who wisely cares and governs for the good of his people, uh, even those on the margins, on the fringes of society. He organized things well. He's got a great, uh, great operation going in Israel. And there's a great summary back in chapter 4 of how good it was living under King Solomon. So this is chapter 4, verse 20. A great summary uh, of his early days. The people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They ate, they drank, they were happy. That's a good king, right? His people are happy. Uh, last week, we heard about Solomon's greatest achievement, uh, the building of a temple. Uh, not just a small building, it was a gigantic place, uh, ornately uh, sort of set out, but more than the architecture. You think about the significance of what he's done. He's built a house, as it were, for the God of the universe. That's no small feat. A place for God's people to come uh, to find forgiveness for sins, to find peace with their Creator, to know His presence and His blessings. Uh, that's quite a project to accomplish. Uh, talk about doing something that really matters with your life. So it's all been looking really good for Solomon, and we're skipping over most of the details today in, in chapters 9 and 10, but if you look back, you see it just keeps getting better and better. Solomon is just so impressive. The things he does, it's actually kind of just exhausting reading the number of things he accomplishes and achieves. He was busy. He did heaps. Uh, in chapter 10, we see the Queen of Sheba. Uh, she famously seeks out Solomon's wisdom, and she's just blown away by his brilliance and all he has done. And we're thinking, so far, so good. This is wonderful. In fact, I would say that uh, 1 Kings 10, I think, is perhaps the high point of the Old Testament. 
Uh, right back at the start of the Old Testament, the start of the Bible almost, God promises to Abraham, uh, centuries before Solomon, God promised Abraham he would make Abraham's family a huge nation. And Israel uh, is that family. He'll give them land, God will bless them, and through Israel, God will bless the entire world. And so as you get to 1 Kings 10, and it feels like we're there. The nations are coming to find out the wisdom of Solomon, the wisdom of God, really, and they're going away blessed uh, because God is keeping his promise to Abraham. Have a look as well. In chapter 10, it's a, it's a place of great prosperity. Um, if you look in the first, uh, you know, first 20 verses or so, you, you could count the number of times you see the word gold. It's everywhere. And the nations, not just Sheba, but many nations are blessed through Israel and their king. Have a look at uh, verse 23, uh, chapter 10. That's where our reading started today. King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the kings of the earth. The whole world, the whole world saw audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. Everything is going so well. Or, so it would seem. See, how often do we hear about the superstar, uh, the person who has it all together on the outside, doing great things, they're rich, they're famous, they're brilliant, uh, perhaps the leader of a great ministry, uh, but behind it all, there is something off. Something's a bit rotten. And the sort of thing that, uh, as, it, as it continues, ends up exposed, becomes a messy court case, front, front page of the newspaper, very public scandals. Unfortunately, behind it all, there is something off with Solomon. In fact, if you're a careful reader of 1 Kings at this point, you would have already picked up a number of things a bit concerning about Solomon, of things that are just a bit off. Uh, so we've heard about his use of forced labour to build his projects. He's had some dodgy trade deals. He's worshipping at high places, not a good thing to do. He's married Pharaoh's daughter, which is a bit of a no-no. He's ordered hits on his rivals. And there's actually a few more things. It's okay, not great, as he put it all together, even though by itself, each of those things, a bit dodgy, but perhaps sometimes sensible. Sometimes you give him the benefit of the doubt. As chapter 10 ends, the narrator, though, kind of puts the spotlight on Solomon, this brilliant king, this superstar. And the spotlight exposes something. It just gives us a different angle, a different lens to see Solomon through. See, when we read at the end of chapter 10, at first glance, there's nothing that alarming. You know, he's had, he has lots of horses and chariots, and they're from Egypt. That sounds good, right? He's collected so much silver, it's practically worthless. Again, that goes with all the gold. You know, that sounds good. You might worry a little bit about the final verse, that he's exporting his horses and chariots, basically the military hardware of the day. He's exporting that to historical enemies of Israel. Always a bit dodgy being an international arms dealer, I guess. But what's the problem? Well, keep in mind, uh, keep all that in mind, chapter 10 of 1 Kings, and let's have a look at what God has asked specifically his king to do and to not do. Because at the end of the day... God isn't impressed by shiny things like we are. This is God's king. He's ruling God's kingdom. So what does God think of all this? That's what really matters, not how much gold there is. So I invite you to turn to Deuteronomy 17 uh, in your Black Bibles. It's on page 273. It's Deuteronomy 17, page 273. I'll um, ask Brian to put it up on the screen here as well. I'll start at verse 16. Um, this is from hundreds of years before Solomon. Uh, God told Israel um, what their kings should and shouldn't do. Solomon had this divine job description. He, had a, he, he should have known this. So starting at verse 16, God has said, The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. 
He must not take many wives, we'll get to that in a second, or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Oh dear. Actually, it keeps going in Deuteronomy. Uh, If you keep reading, you'll see that uh, Solomon is supposed to read this law all the time. He has to know this. He's got no excuses for ignorance. And it keeps on uh, going there that this king must not think of themselves more highly than the rest of their nation. And when you go back with that in mind and read about Solomon's palace and how gigantic it is, you read about his throne and how extraordinary it is, you think, oh, he's not exactly the common man of Israel anymore, Solomon. I would say he thinks he is better than everyone else, uh, given the size of his palace. See, this is the spotlight being shone on Solomon, and it's giving us God's view of what's going on. It's very different to ours, isn't it? We might seem very impressed by Solomon, right up to the point where we realise God's not impressed. God's king is supposed to serve the people. He's supposed to bless the people. But in chapters 9 and 10, the people have actually just faded to the background. It's one thing for Israel to prosper and to have things to eat and drink. It's another thing entirely for the king to get rich himself. I find it odd, actually. Chapter 10 doesn't really slam Solomon directly. It's, It's far more subtle than that. In fact, it almost comes across as if he's wealthy because God is blessing him. But then we get to chapter 11 and we read about his catastrophic failure as God's king. I guess what I'm trying to point out is chapter 10 prepares us to realise that failure is not as sudden as it seems in chapter 11. For Solomon, it's almost like his integrity as God's king has died a death of a thousand cuts over the years. It wasn't a sudden failure. It took a long time to get there. Uh, One commentator I came across puts it in a way I like. He says, Just as an old chair, worn out with repeated use, one day collapses, so Solomon's collapse was the result of years of drifting. See, it might uh, might seem uh, all good and well to make compromises until it isn't all good and well to make compromises. Accumulate just a bit more gold here, just another horse from Egypt there. It's not a big deal. I mean, God didn't say how much gold I should have. What's another ton? I don't think Solomon woke up one day deciding to go and start hoarding all the gold and silver he could possibly find, yet it does seem, bit by bit, he let his guard down to the dangers of greed, of power, perhaps of popularity. And if what we've seen so far is the high point of the Old Testament, it all comes crashing down as we get to chapter 11, and it is devastating. Uh, The effects of this last for centuries. The first three verses here in chapter 11 of 1 Kings, uh, they spun a, they, they're shining a spotlight uh, on something new, it's shining a spotlight on Solomon's love life. And, well, he's been a very busy boy. Far, far worse, though, he's rejected God's comments entirely, his God's uh, commands entirely. Verse 1, we read that Solomon loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. Uh, verse 2, we see the problem isn't their ethnicity, it's not about their race, it's God has warned them, you must not marry them because they will surely, surely turn your hearts after their gods. But Solomon held fast to them in love. That last sentence, holding fast to them in love, it sounds romantic, uh, it almost sounds admirable at first, he's, uh, just, he, he felt, he's fallen for these women, he stands by them no matter what. So it sounds nice, maybe, but you get to verse 3 and you realise he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Like, what kind of love is that? It's hardly admirable, is it? Like, seriously, how would you remember birthdays, let alone, you know, names? It's obscene, though, isn't it? 700 wives, it's obscene. It makes a mockery uh, of his office as king. That's not what God's king should be doing. 
First, because marrying more than one person is never God's plan. Genesis, right back at the start, makes that very clear. I think every time you read in the Bible that someone marries more than one person, it always ends badly. 700 people, that's very bad. Secondly, uh, he at this point is not just compromising on a small part of God's law. It's not just a small compromise. He's blatantly, repeatedly and shamelessly ignoring a direct command from God. Sure enough, verse 4, As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. His heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. And then from verses 5 to 8, we get all the evidence of this. As he follows other gods, he even worships the detestable god Molech, uh, who is famous, among other things, for demanding child sacrifice from his followers, apparently. Now, just note here in passing, by the way, that Solomon hasn't necessarily stopped worshipping God. It's just as he's added other things in. He's added other gods into his roster of worship. It's pretty alarming, isn't it? The wisest guy in history... Uh, who built the temple of God, who has led the people in worship, ends up a tragic figure worshipping silly little statues. He's not just breaking the first commandment, you should have no other gods besides me. He doesn't just break that commandment, he smashes it to pieces. God will not share his glory, and, and rightly so. Like, it's outrageous if we, his creatures, start to worship things he's made. Solomon should have known better, in fact, he did know better, So how did he end up like this? To some degree, we can only uh, speculate, I think, about exactly what's happened here. I don't think it's as simple as he was sex-crazed. That may be true, but I don't think it's as simple as that. In fact, there's a really, uh, I think, uncomfortable detail here that uh, it's easy to miss at the start of verse 4. Have a look with me again. Start of verse 4. As Solomon grew old, as Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart away. This is not a problem of youth, uh, an impulsive, uh, passionate, silly young man in love and you know, he's just married wife, 321, maybe he'll just keep her happy. As he grew old, like, what's going on with that? Well, I don't know, actually. I don't know how Solomon ended up here, but I think it gives us good reason to pause and reflect, reflect carefully on Solomon's failure. After all, uh, surely this is a warning for us. Ultimately, the problem for Solomon wasn't gold, it wasn't the number of wives he had. The problem at its core was he was not fully devoted to the Lord. He was not wholehearted in his love for God. That is what God has asked of him, to be wholehearted. In fact, that's what God has asked for all of us. Jesus tells us the greatest commandment, and it's one that Solomon knew full well, Jesus tells us the great commandment, Uh, is that we love God with every part of our life. So Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy, uh, as he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. It's wholehearted, isn't it? What's required of us. What really matters in our life? This. This really matters. A life that is wholly devoted to God. And it makes sense, doesn't it? Because if he is God, well, he deserves every part of our love, every part of our life in his service. But how hard is that? How hard is it to to live a wholehearted life of devotion to anything? It's hard. I think what I found really confronting about Solomon is that he was once doing this really well. He was once living a wholehearted life of devotion to the Lord. But this, 
is how he ends up. He went from wholehearted to half-hearted, and eventually, slowly, without a change of course, he ended up with a faith that was choked out, perhaps. To quote from Jesus, perhaps choked out by the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things. Solomon gave up uh, the worship of his heart to other things. And I think the most jarring bit of all is that he did it in his old age. Maybe loving God doesn't just automatically uh, get easier as we grow older. I hoped and assumed maybe it would. Maybe it does get easier, but no, maybe not. In fact, uh, this is just me guessing here, but maybe Solomon, he found it harder as he got older to remain, to remain faithful, to be wholehearted in his devotion, because maybe he thought he'd done enough in his life to please God. After all, he'd built the temple. That's amazing, right? Surely God will be happy with him no matter what now. So maybe for some of us, we, we think we've done enough to prove to God that we are wholehearted in our devotion. We've done something once in the past, it was great. Perhaps once we had a faith that was vibrant and active, but now we're kind of running on spiritual fumes. We're doing the right things, maybe, but our hearts now, at the moment, are not devoted like they once were. Perhaps for others, it's maybe more like what we saw with Solomon earlier, that's a danger for us. There might just be a few areas of our life that we've been compromising on, uh, compromising on in our integrity before God, things we've not confronted or sought to change in our lives. Uh, perhaps an attitude to money we know Jesus doesn't approve of, uh, perhaps gravitating towards sexualized TV shows or pornography, perhaps a, a mix of pride or envy or jealousy, envy, uh, as, as we kind of use social media. Perhaps the lessons for us as we look at Solomon who compromised with greed and his sex life and looking down on others, perhaps the lesson for us is that leaving those compromised parts of our life unchecked, unaddressed, it might seem fine until it's not. So, what can we do? What should we do? Well, first, I suppose, we need to hear the wisdom of God. Um, there's a great proverb. I'm not sure if Solomon wrote this one. I think it would be ironic if he did, given the content. This is from Proverbs. Above all else, guard your heart. Above all else, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from there. Sounds good. How do we do that? How do we guard our hearts? Especially in our context, there are so many things competing for our hearts, aren't there? Trying to capture our hearts to give our money or our devotion or our time or our life. How do we guard our hearts? How do we keep our hearts devoted to God? I think first it means uh, making sure we're really talking to God about the things on our hearts, uh, bringing to Him the things that we need to, regularly confessing uh, the way our hearts are seeking things in the wrong places, perhaps seeking uh, satisfaction apart from relationship with Him, seeking security apart from the the eternal promises He has made to us, Perhaps seeking significance apart from our identity as his dearly loved children. Confessing the things we've compromised on and asking for his help to, to grow in our integrity and our devotion. How do we guard our hearts? I think that'd be a really good conversation to keep having with each other. Perhaps a good one to have in your growth groups this week. It's important. As a quick but I think important side note that's relevant from this passage as it comes to guarding our hearts... Um, For those who are here who are aspiring to be married one day, 
Uh, first, hear me say, please don't marry 700 people. Terrible idea. Uh, but please hear this charge from God to guard your heart as you aspire to marriage. I think that means to pursue only someone to marry if they will help you in your wholehearted devotion to God and not hinder you. I should say as well, for those who are here who are in a marriage and for whatever reason, uh, the marriage makes your devotion more difficult, uh, first hear me say, keep going, keep going. And please don't be discouraged by Solomon. Uh, be encouraged that, as we'll see in a second, it's by God's grace. It's by God's grace and His promises that we, we grow and we thrive. It's nothing to do at all without our faithfulness, not our strength, not our resolve, but God's faithfulness to us. In fact, if I just left the sermon uh, roughly here, I, I hope you'd all be a bit concerned at this point. And I hope you'd actually kind of rebuke me for a terrible sermon to now, because so far all I've done is given us a colossal warning. A colossal warning, be 100% devoted to God, or you'll find yourself in your retirement home worshipping Molech. <laughs> now, not making light of the warning, it's a serious warning, but I want to point out it's not the last word in the passage. And the focus in the Bible is never on how much we fail, we can work that out pretty quickly. The focus in the Bible is how God loves and rescues us. Because our hearts are prone to wonder, just like Solomon. And so our passage today ends with a note of God's unshakable grace and mercy despite incredible failure. And it's good news for us all. Uh, from verse 9 here in chapter 11, uh, God is rightly angry that, God's, uh, that Solomon's heart has gone astray and as a consequence, his kingdom is torn from him uh, or will be torn from his son, uh, just as God had warned that would happen. And actually, from this point onwards, the consequence of Solomon's failure uh, for Israel, for the kingdom of God, it, it's, it's, it's tragic. A sin has tragic consequences, and uh, we'll see through the rest of uh, our series that the kingdom just spirals. This wonderful kingdom full of gold just hits one disaster after another after another. Uh, so look forward to that as we keep going through 1 Kings. By the way, I'm not sure what to make of the fact Solomon doesn't say anything at this point. When God sort of uh, tells him, I'm going to take the kingdom from him, he doesn't weep, he doesn't ask for forgiveness, he's silent. I don't know what to make of that. Uh, perhaps he came to reform later in life, I don't know. But I do wonder if his silence is damning. I do wonder what had happened if he'd asked for forgiveness, as his father David had done. But what I want to leave us with is the note of grace here. Uh, even by, like, by rights, God really should have and could have taken the kingdom from Solomon and given it to another. God could have abandoned his promise to David, but he doesn't. The throne of David will continue... It'll be humbled throne, it'll be a weaker kingdom. But even still, God's grace shines through. Because as you wind the clock forward uh, a couple hundred years, it's through the family of Solomon. A family that eventually is an obscure you know, a carpentry family in Nazareth, which is the middle of nowhere. Solomon's family gives birth to David's greatest son, Jesus. Jesus, who announces himself as one greater than Solomon... Jesus was fully devoted and fully obedient, the perfect king for God's kingdom. And what's more, Jesus is the king who can restore and mend our hearts, our wayward hearts. Jesus offers us complete forgiveness for hearts and lives that have not been fully devoted to him. Jesus is the king who generously pours out his spirit on his people, a spirit who empowers us uh, not to grow old and weak in our faith, but a spirit who year in, year out, helps us grow in our faith, to grow in our love 
uh, a devotion to Jesus. The role of the Spirit is, is central here. See, Jesus is the King who really matters, isn't he? We read about Solomon, but Jesus puts him in his shadow. Jesus is truly a King who is worthy of all our praise, our hearts and our lives. So we go back to our question, what really matters? Well, look at Solomon again. For all his achievements, the brilliant things he did, didn't matter at all. It all crumbled to dust. The gold, the temple, is all gone. Because only Jesus offers what truly matters. Jesus offers us eternal security. He gives us the satisfaction of knowing peace and joy. And he gives us the significance of belonging to his family. So would you join me as we pray? King Jesus, we are so thankful that you are the king that we need so desperately. A king who is unwavering in your own righteousness and integrity. A king who loves us and loves us so much you would die for us, even though we so often fail to serve you as we should. Please help us all guard our hearts. Convict us of the things we ought to repent of. Help us to put to death the parts of our lives where we're compromising on godlessness. And so, by your Spirit, please keep growing in us hearts that are eager to be wholehearted in devotion. Please grow our love for you. And we pray this that we might all seek and find great security, satisfaction, and significance in your glorious kingdom today and forever. Amen.